This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, August 5th, the self-expression-ish edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Karen Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is eight, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose, and I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's nine, Oliver, who's seven, and Teddy, who's four, and we live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm Courtney Martin, and I grew up in Colorado Springs, which is, I'm just so excited for the Sea Springs connection, does not happen very often. I'm the author of a Substack newsletter called Examined Family and a new book called Learning in Public. I'm a mom to Maya, who is seven, and Stella, who is five, and we live in Oakland, California. And Courtney, I, sorry, I noticed that we actually both have cargo bikes, too. You wrote yes. about it, I think, in your The Nation piece. White mamas in our cargo yes. bikes. <laughs> It's a thing. Yeah. It is a thing. And somewhere... Jamila has a cool car. There's a black mom driving behind them, terrified for your lives, praying for your children. Get your child into a car. Out of the street. Exactly. I appreciate them in spirit, but as Elizabeth and listeners of the show know, I'm afraid of everything, and cargo bikes are definitely high on the list of fears, but... Nevertheless, glad to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So on today's show, we'll be answering a listener question from a parent whose child will be attending a new school this year, one that requires uniforms. How does she encourage self-expression while still helping her to adjust to this new uniform? And then our guest host, Courtney Martin, will be leading us in a discussion about her new book, Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. On Slate Plus, we'll be talking about when we should teach our kids about sex. According to researchers, the answer is probably a lot sooner than you think. But first, as always, we're going to kick off the show. I should say it's almost always because we didn't do this last week. But we're going to kick off the show today with triumphs and fails. Let's start with you, Elizabeth. Do you have a triumph or a fail for us? I am claiming a triumph, you know, out of a classic kind of failure, but I'm claiming it's a triumph. We sort of overextended ourselves this weekend, as we are wont to do here. So we are hosting a Air Force Academy cadet from France. So, like, essentially, I have added a 25-year-old male to my already testosterone-heavy brood here. And then I decided that we would go camping in the mountains at this, like, lovely, it's like a 1950s property that sort of resembles a KOA. You can camp there and you can do all this stuff, but like all the stuff was very clearly built like in the 50s and the sports courts are like overgrown, but it gives it like this charm. It's like nestled in a valley. Well, the cadet had stuff on Friday and the campground is like two and a half hours away and we were going with another family. So I convinced the other mother, my lovely best friend here who also has three kids, that her and I would drive the two minivans up with all six kids and the two of us and the five tents that we needed to set up because we have a kitchen tent. We had It was supposed to rain all weekend, like a tent to play in. And that the two of us <laughs> would set up the five tents while supervising the six children. And I am already so yes, tired. And the boy, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, the boys, the, the two dads and then our cadet would drive up together like in a, in a separate car when they were done with work so that, so that we weren't like arriving at the campground in the evening trying to cook dinner you know all of this we also did ask them to pick up dinner on the way well we get there and there's like looming clouds and it's thundering and normally I'm pretty like collected in situations like this but one I'm not really like the tent expert and then the thunder is like making me so nervous and you know last time when I was camping I Oliver got sucked into the the sinkhole the mud the quicksand yes <laughs> I'm like, I'm like screaming at everyone to stay close. And I end up like giving the two nine-year-olds the like mallets and the stakes to like stake down all the tents. 
the point is we got everything up by the time the boys showed up. They were so late, though, that we actually had to feed the kids in addition to all of this. I did decide that the real failure was not starting to drink earlier in the process. <laughs> I think that would have helped. We, we didn't like crack open any of the wine or anything we brought until we were putting up the kitchen tent. And I think had we done it earlier, it may have been a more relaxed experience. But then that night, it's like pour, like heavy pouring rain. So much so that Jeff goes out and like checks how far we are from the creek because he's afraid that we're going to be like swept away in a flash flood. And I'm like our little, our not little, our huge 25 year old, you know, male cadet is in this little tent next to us. And I'm just like, Alex, are you staying dry? Like I am the mom he does not want, you know, like we're just, you know, and then he's like, he's like, yes, I am good. I'm like, are you sure? Is there water coming? And I'm sure he's just like, leave me alone. But I was so nervous. I had like done the tents wrong. But I feel like great about the experience. I'm like, you know what? I can do this. I can put up a bunch of tents that come with zero instructions that I've never really done before. And we all stayed dry and we all had a nice time. And I only screamed at the kids like a half dozen times. So, you know, I'm taking it as a win. That is a tremendous win. (laughs) And your ability to put together these experiences and keep it together as they seemingly crumble around you, but yet don't is unparalleled amazing i am so impressed and so uninterested in camping at this particular moment after hearing that story. absolutely not nope i do not recommend volunteering to put up the tents i just cannot recommend i need a tent that's already there like a cabin you yes know, like- yes well i i think so in europe that's how you camped you showed up and the tent was already up so i i think the french cadet was quite shocked when he showed up and realized that i had put up the tents i don't want to undersell either my friend helped i can't believe there's one more thing the europeans do better than us oh there's, there's like I mean, so many so things many. <laughs> and then also they have the tents put up ahead of yeah. time like yeah you call and reserve thing. and they put up the tent and the whole camping it was yeah, great like, paid family great. leave and yeah. tents are yeah. already put up <laughs> It's just like, what? Why do they get all the good stuff? It's so tempting to like look at Europe as just like the epicenter of all the bad things and the racism. But like I have to remind myself that like America is the castaways. So like they got the sophistication, the technology. We got to put up our own tents like real castaways. That's right. right. Wow. (laughs) It's very sad. Courtney, what about you? Do you have a triumph or a fail? This is your debut. This is so much pressure. Yes, this is my debut. Mine's a mix, which I'm guessing most of these things are, right? You always have to find both. My five-year-old turned five last week, but the the failure is somehow we kind of let it get away from us that the whole month became her birthday month. (laughs) And I think it was like a mix of post-ish covid trying to give the kids the thing they didn't have last summer vibe where where we were like she basically didn't get to have a birthday last year a party so we were like okay like you can have a birthday party with my parents and then you can have a birthday party with john my husband's parents and then you can have like a party at your school and so it was just one of these like making up for like the shittiest year ever with way too many parties all of them were incredibly small scale and mostly handled by all these other people which is a triumph like (laughs) all the grandparents in the schools and, you know, all the things. So that was a triumph that I basically like mostly got out of the work of all of these (laughs) birthday parties, including by the way, my older daughter is obsessed with wrapping presents. So she wrapped every single present horribly. Like I can't even tell you how bad, like Christmas paper, like multi different kinds of Christmas paper on a box, like barely wrapped up. And I was like, this is perfect. This is like an exquisite wrapping job. You can do all of them. So I got rid of most of the labor, but it was just way too much. And by the end, my older daughter was about to like stab her sister in the sleep because she just had gotten like so much attention and so many toys and just like just too much. It was just too much. Are you concerned that you've now set a dangerous precedent? Yes. (laughs) What an idiot I am. Like what? Yeah, definitely a bad precedent. Like what happens in November when it's Maya's birthday month? (laughs) And she's like, where are my five cakes? And I'm just going to be like, wow, the COVID thing is out of like out of my consciousness yeah. now. Like yeah. you're all just getting your one little party. I do live in a co-housing community. So that's really helpful because you basically like invite one other family and you're like, this is a party because there are a bunch of other people, like all these aunties and uncles. Yeah. Um, so so again, Wait, the Courtney, labor what's involved. A, what's a co-housing community? A co-housing community is like, I mean, it varies. Ours is a piece of land in the middle of Oakland 
where there are nine units that have everything any typical individual home would have. But we also have a shared like industrial size kitchen and eating area, shared garden, shared tool shed. And we in non-COVID times, we eat twice a week together. In COVID times, we didn't eat it all together. And now in these like COVID-ish times, we're like potlucking once a week together. And it's intergenerational. So it's like the oldest member is an 83-year-old single woman. And the youngest member is like, you know, turning three actually on Thursday. And everybody in between. This is like my dream, except I also want like some kind of shared craft shed. Oh, we would be into that. That would be really fun. I'm mostly the craft (laughs) shed. My house is like the craft shed because I'm just like artsy and have a lot of. Yeah, I like to like do all this stuff. But, you know, it's like you sometimes there's stuff that you don't need for everything. It's like you just want to use it once. But someone else probably wants to use it once, too. Exactly. We got one grill, one mower, like we share laundry so we share a washer and dryer. But otherwise, you know, we all have our own individual kitchen. Right, right. So every other night of the week, you know, we do our own thing. I've always been curious about uh, this way of living and like intentional community building, which seems like increasingly necessary. And I mean, just perpetually valuable. Like one thing about the United States, and I'll admit, I'm definitely somebody who's like, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. But like in other parts of the world, people live with their parents, right? It is a thing that you do. Like you live with your sister who, you know, like, and just this way that people are able to take care of one another that we're not able to do because we're socialized to live alone or only with our partner or our children. I think that's really- Speaking of parenting, like It's the big triumph is that it takes a lot of the load off of parenting, not because like we're all literally taking care of each other's kids all the time, although we do we do really throw in for each other in lots of ways, but also because you just don't feel like you have to be the perfect parent because there's so many people with so many skills and temperaments that your kid is getting. So it's like, I'm just one version of being like an adult human in the world. If this doesn't work for you, Maya and Stella, there are a bunch of other versions that you get to be around all the time, like aunties with totally different personalities and interests and like go over to their house to like learn how to put on makeup because I'm going to totally fail you in that front, which I think people do with friends, of course. But it's like, I think it's more effort. You have to be more intentional about it if you don't live in a community like this because it's just... It's like something that was created once 20 years ago, and that was a hard lift, but now it just perpetually lives on as this way we we run into each other in the courtyard and, you know, give each other advice about diaper cream or, like, you know, be like, oh, I have extra milk and, like, we're going out of town. Do you want it? And just these, like, little things that help us live interdependently. I know this isn't what you came to talk about, but this is just so inspiring and interesting. I, I, this just sounds amazing. Let us know when a, when a spot <laughs> opens. It's amazing. I mean, it's not perfect. We also like have no, really course, hard shit like... go on and, you know, all the things. And and it's like there is like a national co-housing movement. Again, something that Europeans do far more widely than we do here in America. But there is a national co-housing movement. It's like preposterously white. And, you know, in terms of like the economics of it, like it's really hard to find a piece of land together to get the financing and the financial structures for it still don't really exist. Like this is not how obviously American capitalism thinks about real estate. So you have like a group of people who are like, we want to own something together. And are like, we have no Uh, reference for this. Um, So, you know, my big call to like the co-housing movement, as it were, is just like, we have to think about access and, you know, racial diversity in addition to all these other diversities, like religious diversity and other things that people have talked about throughout, uh, the, the recent times of the movement. And class diversity too. You know, I mean, part yeah. of the value of having different people come together is the way that you're able to, you know, that you're able to interact with people with whom you wouldn't otherwise know. And if everybody's from the same background, you know, with that regard, it seems like there's something lost there. Also, some of those organizations and wealthy folks that have been, you know, writing those guilt checks since George Floyd was killed, consider investing into co-housing and making it available to people of color and other, you know, in populations who wouldn't otherwise have access to it. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for sharing this information with us and your experiences with co-housing. Super, super fascinating. And we're going to have a lot more fascinating conversation with you to come. But first, I have a triumph, which is an extension of, or I guess connected to the recommendation that I made last week uh, about having some time away for yourself, uh, which I got to experience via COVID. 
So I, as I mentioned last week, had COVID and I had to quarantine until last week. And I tested negative, I'm feeling better. And as I mentioned, this had been a very productive and peaceful time for me in a lot of ways. And as much as I miss my daughter and as difficult as it was for us to be apart, once I accepted that that was just what had to happen, I was able to have, I think, a breather, not necessarily from her, but from all of the other obligations and expectations, you know, that just make motherhood and everything else more difficult. Not having those to worry about at all, like, I was anxious and worried about Naima and being away from her, but everything else I could give a fuck, you know? And so, like, to only, essentially only have her and I to think about and also not having her immediate care to manage, you know, was, I exhaled, right? But what ended up happening that I was not prepared for was that toward the end of my quarantine, she had to quarantine and we were on different schedules, so... She does not come out of quarantine until the day after we record this, which means that when you hear this, we will have been reunited. But while I'm recording this, I have not seen Naima since July 19th. You know, we've had maybe two weeks apart in the past, maybe like exactly two weeks to the day, but never under these circumstances, you know, especially not like us being in the same city and I could just go get her in theory, right? And so I had to make a decision, and and this is what I'm counting as a triumph, that I could either get her during the quarantine or she could stay at her dad's house. And for safety reasons, we thought about it. I think her dad and stepmom were already convinced that this was the right decision, and then I came around to it once a friend of mine got in my ear and was like, you know, you have to think about your neighbors, you have to think about her, the neighbors at their house, and, like, you do not want to be the reason that this thing is spreading, like, you don't want her to be exposed, like, essentially, the decision was made that she was going to stay there, and so that we were going to be away from each other, as opposed to just 10 to 14 days, but, or rather, as opposed to being away from each other for 10 days, or until my quarantine was over, that we would be apart for a really long time, and it has sucked in a lot of ways you know again like I was preparing to come out so I had a timeline okay Naima's coming back on this day and we're gonna you know do this and like and then it didn't happen I had to say okay like it's in everybody's best interest that my daughter's not with me and I guess I'm calling that the triumph because it was a really hard decision like because I miss her because I feel guilty about being separated from her, even though it was for this very serious reason, because I feel guilty for getting COVID, which made me be away from my daughter, you know, like just all the reasons, but like, I know it was the right thing to do, you know? And I really knew it was the right thing to do that when even my mom agreed, as opposed to that usual like pause in her voice she does where I make mention to any additional time that my daughter's spinning away from me because bless her heart, she's still just like, whoo, 50, 50, 50 custody. Wow, you are a mad woman. You know, like it's the unspoken. It's it's not even the unspoken thing between my mom and I. It's me and the world, right? Like that's how I feel. Like I, no one has ever said anything to me. No one has ever looked at me. You know, my mom kind of did look at me crazy when it first happened, but I know so much of it is me feeling bad for not being the 100% mom. You know, like, for not being the full-time mom, even though, like, circumstantially, we're not there. We're not together. We've agreed to co-parent. That means that at least some of her time is going to be elsewhere, right? You know, like, we did less than 50, and once her father proposed 50, I agreed that that was fair, you know, and it made sense, and it's worked thus far. But, like, there's always that little bit of guilt about that. So now it was like, not only do you routinely not have your baby... Now you have to not have your baby during this time where she's stuck in the house and she's sad and she's bored. So I'm I'm giving myself a triumph for that just because it was a very hard thing to do. And I very easily could have done what would have been very selfish, what might have put her and, and other people at risk and transported her and brought her over here. But I didn't. And maybe I shouldn't give myself any credit for doing what was like an obvious right thing to do. But... I'm reminded that in the pursuit of being a good mom, like doing the obvious right thing doesn't always feel like the obvious right thing. Well, I also think your triumph is that you 
have recognized that the part of the challenge of making the right decision was about something much deeper than this moment and COVID and quarantine, which like feels like the really enlightened parenting move here is that like you are being self-reflective and being like, this is tapping into a bigger thing for me that I deal with all the time. That seems like a huge triumph, right? Absolutely. Thank you. I think modeling, you know, all of this to Naima is such a good triumph. And and because uh, in so many ways, what you did is teach her, like, as a parent, we have to make hard choices in which I don't always get to put my needs first. And in this case, like, I didn't even necessarily put your needs first, right? Like, we put the community needs because you are in a safe place where you are safe and I put trust in my co-parents. And, uh, you know, this is the best thing for us. But also, to, I think just showing her, like, that sometimes life throws us things that we don't want, you know, hey, we were planning for this reunification and this other thing happened. Like, this is just how this turned out. I can so relate, though, too, to those feelings, because I think, I mean, we talk about this a lot, like that mom guilt about everything and just about, like, how am I not enough? And I, I agree with Courtney that it's it's, like, amazing how self-reflective you can be to say, like, how much of that is us and how much of that, you know, is actually there but i i think it's a huge triumph you have made the best out of a really unfair and terrible situation because you're vaccinated and you're you've done everything like how many sacrifices have you made during this pandemic right and you never thought in that that if you had to be quarantined it would be with you and naima in separate places uh, that sucks that totally sucks and also, like you said, there there are elements of it that don't suck. <laughs> there were also the elements that did not suck. And I feel so guilty about that. And that's okay, that. too. You should not feel guilty about that. Which no. is also true of the 50% parenting thing, right? Is like, yes. That yes. is like a meta reflection of that, where like it sucks and it doesn't suck in some ways. Because you have but a you chance feel guilty for like more agency suck. and like self-development than like... Elizabeth and I do who have our kids theoretically 100%. I don't, you know, like, are we actually there 100%? No, but, you know, like, I, I just think it's so meta, the whole thing. It really is. It, it's been just an interesting, it's been an interesting journey. And, you know, and I've communicated a lot of this to her and, you know, not necessarily about my anxiety or whatever, but just like uh, Elizabeth was saying that sometimes we have to make difficult decisions and like, this is don't think that because it's not what you wanted that it was what I wanted, you know, like or that because I was involved yeah. in the decision that like that I'm happy or okay with this, right? Yeah. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Until she's smart about something and then <laughs> then you'll be like, wait a minute. Right. I can't wait to hear about your reunification. Like yeah. I, I know all of this has been, like you said, has ups and downs, but I feel like it's going to be so nice. Like by the time people are listening to this, hopefully you guys have had just a wonderful 24 hours of being back together. Thank you. I hope so too. Pray for us. I will. <laughs> but I, I'm very optimistic. All right. Uh, before we get into our listener questions, of course, we have a little bit of business to take care of. First things first, if you haven't already, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to the show. It helps us out tremendously. And that means that every episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting will show up in your feed. So it's good for you and good for us. You don't have to go looking. We'll come for you. Subscribe today. And if you want even more of our show, you should become a Slate Plus member. You'll get a whole bonus segment every week. Here is a sneak peek of what you could be listening to today if you were a Slate Plus member. The Times article reads, According to Gutmacher Institute data, 20 states do not require that sex education be taught in school at all. And of those that do, only 18 states require that the information be medically accurate. Only 18 of the 20 of 50 total states where people have sex do they require that medically accurate information is taught in schools? Back to the article. Just nine states teach students about the importance of consent. Now, not only will you get fun segments like that, but you'll even get bonus episodes of shows like Culture Gap Fest and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll get unlimited reading on the Slate website without ever hitting a paywall again. So if you want to support us, please, and support Slate, sign up for Slate Plus. It's only a dollar for the first month. Go to slate.com backslash mom and dad plus. 
Finally, Slate's parenting newsletter is the best place to be notified about all of our parenting content each week, including mom and dad are fighting, care and feeding, and much more. It's also a personal email from that guy, Dan Qua. Remember him? Sign up at slate.com backslash parenting email. We're going to get into our only listener question for the week. But first, let's take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we're back. On to our question being read, as always, by the lovely Shasha Leonard. Hi, Mom and Dad. My daughter will be attending kindergarten this fall, and the school has uniforms. I've never had to wear a uniform, so this is sort of new for all of us. Can anyone give us tips on how to navigate this and still encourage self-expression? We are trying to prepare her now so that it's not as jarring when classes start in a couple weeks. Also, why does school start so early? Oh my gosh, I, this is a very exciting topic for me because we've only had uniforms the entire time Naima's been in school since she was two. I'm really uh, curious to hear what you all have to say and how you all have helped your kids remix their uniforms. Courtney, let's start with you. Have you done with this before? I'm the opposite. No, we've never had uniforms. Either I have not growing up, nor has my kid, but I did just want to offer one little thing, which is my seven-year-old, who's just like an artistic weirdo in the best possible way, has started sewing little buttons onto really weird places on her shirts lately. So I'll like grab a shirt and they'll just be like this one button that was like in something my grandmother passed down to me that is all of a sudden on the shirt. And these like teeny <laughs> tiny pockets, which are like very <laughs> impractical. There's like nothing to do with these pockets, but they're like, she's got a great sense of style. Like they'll be like a really cool material and stuff. I don't know how far you can go with uniforms. Like, are you allowed to sew on teeny tiny pockets? I don't know. But the button thing is very random, but very cute and just like her own little flair. So I wondered if maybe that could be adapted, but I'd love to hear from you guys because I think you have way more experience than I do. I grew up wearing uniforms like I went to Catholic school until high school. And so we had uniforms. And I just remember like the opportunity to be expressive, like on our backpacks and our lunch boxes and our folders. And I think there's so much more stuff, like you said, with the buttons. If you can't sew them onto your uniform, you can probably sew them onto your bag or your coat or some kind of accessory. And just like I know using Sharpie or duct tape and attaching keychains, like I think there are these other ways at our school, we had a small choice of tops in terms of color. So that was a little bit, but definitely like you could do most anything with like your hair and your hair bow and socks, especially as we got older, I feel like crazy socks yep. were <laughs> the thing like just to do lots of those. But I, I actually really enjoyed the uniform. And of course, my husband still wears a uniform every day. But I liked the idea of just like, I get up and I know what to put on. And maybe that's like the practical side of me. And you, of course, have weekends and other events. And I know like seventh, eighth and, and ninth grade, like once we got out of school, like as soon as the school bell rang, you know, we would turn our little jumpers into skirts, like that kind of stuff, feeling like there were still opportunities for that expression. But like it made the morning so easy, right? You just get up. We I had this terrible plaid jumper and this little white shirt with a Peter Pan collar. <laughs> I mean, it was no fashion statement, but it was like you just put on the same thing every day. It was great. So to start with your second question, I don't know why school starts so early. It's ridiculous. I like walk. I went to Target the other day for the first time in a while. And like all the back to school stuff, like right when you walk in was so PTSD triggering for me because like 
I remember when I was a kid, and I've talked about this on the show, getting so upset at Walgreens having their back-to-school stuff out in July that I wrote a letter to corporate because kids were just trying to explain. We were just trying to have fun and enjoy our summer without thinking about back-to-school because that's how much I hated going back-to-school. And, like, I feel you. It's too soon. But kindergarten, uniform. I am so into that letter. Like, do you still know where it is? And could you read it? I wish. Because I think that is like the best thing I've ever heard. And that's why I am such an archivist of my daughter's stuff. Like, I may not have it well organized, but damn it, I keep it. Because like, I wish that I had, like, I have stuff. I think the oldest stuff I have is going back to high school. But I wish I had that letter. Like, I typed it at my mom's job. She was the secretary. For some reason, I was with her at work instead of at camp or wherever I was at summer and I was on the old school computer with my very little you know I love that little girl typing that thing <laughs> and can you imagine like the corporate person who opened it was just like this is amazing. I know like what did they do I don't know it? we got no response so I also have to like wonder did my mother ever mail it I had to check in with her about it because I was very serious about that letter um but I don't remember I don't know if I would have had a lot of follow-through at that point because I had to have been like seven or eight so just old enough to be outraged but maybe not to like follow up and make sure that you like, to like follow through yeah plus without really the internet like following through yeah you know, wasn't like you could just continue to send emails exactly it's like who exactly am i <laughs> am i calling the walgreens yeah. company um <laughs> like the time i called uh jenny craig and they said you're a little girl they're, they're like you i'm sorry you have to be over 18 and i was like what kind of technology do they have how did they know like I thought they had, they, had like, they must have something where the people whose names live in the house come up <laughs> because how could they have known that I wasn't my mother or an adult, you know? So that would have been yeah. the Walgreens people, <laughs> like amazing. somehow being able to tell I was a child. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so I love that. I only wore uniforms myself for one year. It was my eighth grade year. I could not have been, we were so pissed off, like after <laughs> seven years thinking that now we're the big kids we can wear what we want and do what we want we run the school we had to everyone had to wear uniforms uh the way i coped with that i just i think we just we also had to wear hunter green green ended up becoming my favorite color but at the time it was like we had hunter green Mm -hmm. and our accent color was like gold so we couldn't even do the like black and white blue and white blue and blue thing that everyone else did so it was very hard to find clothes that year kindergarten girl this is you know, regardless of how she chooses to present or adorn herself, like, there are so many options here. One, unless it's some super, you know, difficult to find color like hunter green, I would imagine the uniforms are probably dark blue, black, um, some sort of neutral. You can find pieces in those colors easily. Go online, you know, check all your kids' stores and your Target or wherever you shop for clothes. Check eBay check Mercari, and find stuff that goes outside of the traditional kind of dicky pant, you know, jumper look if you want to. So my soon-to-be third grader has worn uniforms at every school that she's been at from preschool on. So maybe I'll post some pictures in the Facebook group because my work in styling her uniforms when she was in preschool is like just some of the best work that I've done on this planet. She was a fashion plate. And most of these things were just items from the French toast line at the uniform store. They had blazers, they had vests, they had all different types of jumpers. And she was wearing blue and gold, gold shirts and blue bottoms. Just like Elizabeth said, the bows and the socks, they mean all that they make all the difference in the world, you know? And like, I'm really big in color coordination. I, it's, it's perhaps a Chicago thing. My New York best friend says, I'm, you know, this is very, you're so matchy-matchy, but I love, like, finding, you know, coordinating patterns and colors, and, like, you can do that. And also contrasting ones, too. Like, just playing with color gives me so much pleasure with clothes, and it's something that my daughter has taken on, too. Like, I see her obsessing over, you know, like, I want to have, am I going to do yellow or purple to go with these pink socks? Or, you know, and, like, start thinking and talking about those things now what stock colors look really fun with the uniform right like you know do you want to be monochromatic or do you want to have a pop of something really bright you know just putting thought and intention into it despite the fact that you have these constraints i think will give your little one the opportunity to express herself but they're just again like push the boundaries of the uniform as far as you can like we had one piece jumpsuits 
you know, um, have been a staple of her wardrobe at every school. So whatever the base, the bottom color was, I've always sent her and, you know, check Zara. And again, look at eBay. Use kids' clothes. At this uh, point, like, I'm imagining that movie Pretty in Pink when Ducky gets, like, the old prom dress and he, like, <laughs> remakes it to be this totally amazing new dress. This is, like, you with, like you know, boring school uniform outfit is like, you guys just like are totally remixing it. And she's walking into like some amazing music and it's just very dramatic. <laughs> it was, you know, and again, it wasn't even anything super crazy, but just how a little accessory, like she had, you know, she wore blue and white. Like I remember there being like a blue and white striped sailor button sweater, you know, that just made every outfit look just that much nicer. And like, um, Courtney mentioned with the buttons, you know, you can change the buttons, you know, you can also, you can certainly do, uh, as her daughter does, and sew random buttons on, but you can also change the buttons on a sweater, you know, you can go to a resale shop, That's a or, good idea. you know, Goodwill and get some fun, colorful, I love, you know, bejeweled buttons or whatever, and put those on your school cardigan or on your jumper, like, if there's anything that you can do in terms of altering, you know, the skirts and things and maybe you know cutting things up a little bit not in a way that's like showing additional skin or you know making it look like it's not something appropriate for school but like yeah like layering or yeah there's just there's so much that you can do get that school handbook and find those loopholes that's <laughs> if you look at my instagram we can link that in the show notes just go back a couple of years because i haven't posted or like yeah, or I'll, I'll link my daughter's Instagram, which I no longer really update because she's kind of aged out of like me feeling comfortable doing that on a regular basis. But I posted a lot of fun uniform pictures there. But um, there was one more thing. And trust your kid's ingenuity, right? Like kids are so creative. Like your kid will figure out a way to do this. And she'll see what other kids are doing at school to differentiate themselves and come home and tell you she needs that thing. And so she'll figure it out. We need your inspo picks, though. Yes. You gotta, yeah, I'll, you I'll draw link, sure. link the... Oh, one more. Yes, I got one more. Oh. <laughs> Ties. Ties. <gasps> yes. Oh, my gosh. They were my favorite accessory. Now, if your daughter doesn't like wearing them, and Naima went through a period of time where she didn't like them, and then she did, and then she didn't. Um, but, like, so you don't want to make your baby wear a tie if she's not comfortable. But, like, oh, my goodness. Anyway, most uniform stores sell ties. They may have plaid, kente cloth, solid colors. If there's no rules around this, you could do any sort of color tie. And if not, you know, if you have to do the ones that match the school colors, that's still one way to make the outfit look really nice. I think the biggest thing is that you're allowing or encouraging your daughter to participate because this isn't just about her being stylish, but about like self-expression, which is something I struggle with sometimes because sometimes, you know, what my daughter deems self what you know, her expressing herself to me, I'm like, but we don't want to wear things that don't look good together right and like the difference between like it's not that it mad it doesn't have to match we just want it to coordinate right but then sometimes i'm like maybe it coordinates just fine to her you know like is this what she <laughs> needed to express today like is this when is it the time to like say what's the rule for you all when do you when do you jump in and say this outfit requires some steering versus this is what you want and you know i'm encouraging you to be yourself I feel boys get such a pass, like Prince? the three boys. I mean, yeah. well, like, I mean, all three of mine dress totally differently in their own ways, right? Like Henry is rocking the, no, he he's like the sensory kid. So all athletic wear, you know, unless we're going somewhere where I've asked him to put something on. And then Oliver um, mostly likes to choose things from kind of the girls section of Target with lots of sequins and pink and purples and we shop a lot of like primary.com to try to find things that you know that are cut the way he likes them but also have the stuff the way he likes but teddy has like come into like he wants all he wears like button downs and uh polos like every day that's what he if i pull a t-shirt out he's like no oh. take something hung up and he likes to wear a little jacket and oh my gosh. um i <laughs> sometimes he wears the whole outfit backwards <laughs> which i'm pretty you know i'm like you know it's backwards he's like oh yeah i know but I, I feel like, though, I mean, maybe there is as much pressure and I just don't feel it. But I feel like, you know, their friends, especially now, are all like just wearing the like little umbro, you know, the like athletic pants with a T-shirt and are out like they don't think about it. They just kind of put on what's comfortable. Teddy clearly thinks about it. But in the same way, like I have my staples, I have sort of like this capsule wardrobe. I wear basically <laughs> the same thing most days to my life and I'm as long as I'm comfortable I'm more into feeling like do I like you know do I feel comfortable and can I do the things I want to do in the clothes that I have 
I do find it weird. I was just realizing when you were talking about the gender stuff that my husband is far more fashionable than I am. Like he's a designer and he cares about design and he care. He's a very visual person. And like many times if we're going out to something fancy, I'll be like, how is this? And he'll like yeah. buy me jumpsuits. And like, he's like, but I do a hundred percent of the kids clothes, which makes no <laughs> sense. It's like, I just went through all of their stuff yesterday because I'm like, we're starting school next week. Let me look through all the clothes, yeah. get rid of the too small stuff, see you need new pants because they all have holes in them. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is your, this is one of those yes, things this is that your like, thing. yeah, he's more into it. Why shouldn't he be doing that? So anyway, after we get off this, this recording, I will go correct that. <laughs> <laughs> the clothes are now your responsibility. No. <laughs> I want to see all these cute uniform pictures. <laughs> I do too. I want to see every uniform picture. Please tag me in uniform pictures or you can inbox. Well, that probably sounds weird, but like just however you feel comfortable sharing your uniform pictures, we would like to see them. Thank you so much, Letter Writer, for jumping in on the Facebook page and sharing your parenting quandary with us. Uh, if you too are listening and have a question that you want us to consider on mom and dad are fighting, shoot us an email to momanddadatslate.com or you can do as this person did and leave it for us on the Facebook page. All right, we're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And let's get back to the show. We are going to have our lovely guest host, Courtney Martin, talk to us about her new book, Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. Courtney, tell us all about your new book. Thank you so much. I kind of feel like I just want to put our articles. We were both in this issue of The Nation that was about anti-racist parenting. And I, our, our two articles were in there. And I felt like they spoke to each other in such <laughs> an amazing way. I just like loved your piece so much. Essentially, my piece in that edition, but also the book itself, is about you know one white mother's attempt to try to understand how to make a school choice that's both good for my family, but also good for, for the city and particularly for the kids most marginalized in the city for generations, which are like the black and brown kids, the Title I schools that have been under-resourced and um, mostly neglected and kind of looking at all of that through this lens of the unfinished project and progress of integration in this country. And your piece was this like beautiful meditation on the the importance of black spaces and the importance of protecting in a still very racist world these schools and communities where black kids can know their own beauty and their own excellence and be prioritized in all of the right ways. So that thread is really in the book is like, is my kid's presence at this black and brown Title I school a way in which we are, you know, shifting power and shifting resources 
as we know from a lot of research, that when white kids show up, the resources follow, not because they're magical, as Nicole Hannah-Jones always says, but because that's what's happened with white people is we, like, bring our resources and power with us. Or is she a distraction? Is she, like, is my white kid someone who is, and am I as a white mom, taking up space in a school that otherwise has more of a cohesive um, kind of black and brown culture? So that's what I wrestle with in the book, and it's it's out this week, and I'm, like, so looking forward to you know, the responses and, and just being able to really engage with people about some of these issues. Courtney, I felt like the book does such, and, and the article, does such a good job talking about kind of the uncomfortableness of your decision and then living with the decision, like both in the ways that you just spoke about, like in uh, am I taking up space? And also in that, like you made a decision that was different than many of your friends, even your very progressive friends. And I think that's the thing that, you know, often we don't we don't talk about is like the continuing struggle to deal with that uncomfortableness. Like you made this decision and and then continuing to like assess is this the right choice for my kid? Is this the right choice for my community? So I was hoping you could you could speak a little bit kind of about that uncomfortableness and, and where you are with that now and how you continue to frame and, and think about that. Yeah, totally. The book has four parts. And the first part is me trying to make the decision. But really, the majority of the book, the three other parts are living into that decision. What is it actually like to show up in this community, try to be useful, try to, you know, create friendships across racial and class lines as adults. Like, meanwhile, of course, the kids are all fine. Like, (laughs) they're the most simple part of the book. Um, The adults are the ones making a mess in, in every way, myself included. So that is really, this is a book about white discomfort. And the challenge I was up against was how do we make white culture, especially white parenting culture and white mother parenting culture, like white progressive culture, how do we make that visible so that we can decenter white people? So it's a little bit of a paradox because it's like, it's hard to write about yourself, you know, myself being a white mom, because like the pursuit of the goal is how do we get white people to see ourselves accurately so we can like right size our our fears so we can actually name where our racism shows up in order to, you know, again, the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing, which for me is like, how do we make sure that in this theoretically very progressive city that black and brown kids, in addition to white kids, are getting the education they deserve? And in order to do that, I think white parents have to get much more brave about looking at their own behavior. So that's a lot of what I was trying to do in the book and certainly is alienating to a lot of white people Certainly interpersonally was really hard with a lot of my friends because this book does call into question a lot of their choices and kind of the gap between who we represent ourselves to be and who we actually are in terms of these kind of fork in the road moments. So it's been hard in a lot of ways, but I think it's the reward of of many is that we are part of this beautiful school community and going on in our fourth year in this community. And, and it's just been such, it has been a learning journey, but it's also just been like such a sheer joy, which I hope comes across in the book too. Something that I'd be curious to hear about is what relationship building uh, with the black and brown adults in the school community has been like, because as you said, kids typically, you know, unless they've been exposed to certain kinds of information, will find their way towards each other, right? And and become friends and can look past class and racial lines. But for adults, I think that, you know, certainly it isn't that white adults are met with the sort of intolerance that Black or Latino ones may be met with when they integrate all white communities. But I can imagine at times there is a sense of resistance if for no other reason that having, you know, class mobile white folks in your space can be visually triggering, you know, or rather it can just be triggering to to see you, right? Like that, does this represent a change in the community? Am I going to be able to afford to live where I live? Because now, you know, these folks are taking an interest in our school. Will our kids still be welcome here? Will the, you know, curriculum change to adjust to them? What, What does this mean? There's a lot that, you know, I can say as a Black parent, you know, even one of some relative privilege that comes to the table when you start seeing white folks pop up at your kid's school. I'd be really interested to hear your side of those exchanges. Yeah, I feel like you're really pinpointing the, you know, integration versus gentrification, which is like a huge question is, you know, 
how many white people, what kind of white people are showing up in order to like try to shift power and privilege in the way that Nicole Hannah-Jones and Rucker C. Johnson and all these great academics and journalists have written about. And so I've been very conscientious of that and write about it really vulnerably in the book. I think, you know, the biggest sort of takeaway for me is just it's about trust and time, right? It's about continuing to show up four years later through, you know, various ups and downs and just try to like keep proving myself because there's a profound reason that there's so much cynicism about white people showing up. I mean, there's like, you know, no shortage of evidence of what happens when we do, particularly if we're ever in groups, you know, we're still the vast minority at my kid's school. There aren't a lot of white people showing up. So it's, but there are a lot of other instances where white people say like, let's bring a quote unquote critical mass of white people to the school to try to make it quote unquote better. And then you have the school sort of remade in the image of, of white parents' values what they think is best, et cetera. So, so yeah, so, so many reasons to be cynical. And the only thing I've figured out really is to just keep showing up and keep trying to build trust over time and be very mindful of when I'm impressing my own values versus just like throwing in my thoughts and, and really deeply listening to what values of other parents are. The other thing that's like very personal, but I think there are tons of white moms who would identify with this is, you know, I'm a two on the Enneagram. I don't know how much you guys have ever done Enneagram, but like, I like to help. Like I'm a helper. I'm like, I'm very like identified with being someone who, you know, shows up like sleeves rolled up, ready to like be supportive. And so when you code that onto racism and race, like that's a totally patronizing, like white savior-y framework. And so I've had to really watch myself within these relationships. Like, when am I showing up with that kind of energy? And then the other thing I've seen show up in a lot of these kind of multiracial spaces and friendships, and sometimes even across social media is like, white women over subscribing on particular black women's voices. So it'll be like, well, this black mom said she doesn't care about test scores. So now nobody cares about test scores. And it's like, well, actually, that was just like one black mom's opinion on test scores. And I see this showing up in social media where people be like, okay, so and so says abolition is the thing. So now we all have to like all white moms have to who are progressive are going to say like, we believe in abolition then like, oh, there's this other person who's saying they don't like I happen to think abolition is awesome. But I just watch that in myself. It's like so invested in listening to black women's voices as to be reductive because it's as if there is like one black mom's voice that now I'm going to like represent as a white mom in that space. So there's like a million ways we twist ourselves up. And I'm kind of in this book trying to document all of them and say like, let's get real about like the ways in which our whiteness shows up. And still like at the end of the book say, I still believe in this thing called integration. I still believe that there's a virtue in white parents thinking far more realistically about what we have to lose in making different kinds of decisions. And and if anything, even if white parents don't send their kids to integrating schools, even if just white parents stopped talking shit about schools they've never been to, that would be like a huge, a huge move forward. You know, there's so much talk about good and bad schools. And many times the bad schools are just black and brown schools that white folks have never even set foot on. But they go to the playgrounds, and they go to the birthday parties and perpetuate the ideas that these places are, you know, not not good for kids when, in fact, they're like beautiful communities. I'm curious to know what to you, Courtney, is how many white families is too many? Like, where do is there a line that is drawn? Because I think. That's the complicated question about both integration and gentrification, right? Like, at what point is it inevitable that a culture has shifted? You know, oftentimes the school that, you know, the first couple of white families dip their toe into and check out is one that was high performing, right? And so the school has been established as being a high performing school for black and brown children if white families come and there's this improvement, right? There's the resources that you're able to provide, you know, so now this good school becomes a great school or, you know, this or this good school stays a really good school. But now we know that white people go there. And so we're these other white families and we trust it. What sort of self-regulation needs to be done to ensure that you're not doing exactly the thing you don't want to do, which is changing the complexion of a place and, and making it in your own image? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think we should allow white people to self-regulate like at, at all. <laughs> as much as possible, we should prevent white people from 
being the ones responsible for like making integration happen. I like I'm trying to do a hearts and minds thing here, but like I absolutely think enrollment policy and like structural shifts are the most trustworthy attempt for us to create equity in education. So like in Oakland actually, there's a new enrollment pilot that's putting particular caps on like how many low income kids, you know, and and sort of balancing it out structurally essentially. I won't get into the details of it cuz sort of boring for probably a lot of people, but, you know, and in a city like Oakland, where it's about 40% white, but only 10% of our public school students are white, 10%, and they are accruing in like three or four schools, which are like vast majority white. It's like, there aren't really enough white kids to go around to gentrify in certain ways. Like, we just don't have a lot of white kids in the city in the public school system. But I know that that is a, a danger in other school systems. And yeah, I don't, I don't think there's like an answer, right? There's no science to it. But I will say that so few white parents, I mean, now I'm the person everyone wants to have a coffee with when they're thinking about where to go to school. Maybe not after the book comes out. <laughs> but before the book came out, it was like everyone would reach out and be like, we're thinking about Emerson, the school where my kid goes, as if, you know, like they wanted a cookie even for thinking about it. And then we'd have a coffee and I'd be like, Here, talk to them about all the things. And no one ever chooses the school. Like, it's just like, it basically inevitable that everyone's like has a really complicated reason for why they don't end up at the school. So I do know gentrification of schools is a danger. And here in Oakland, it's pretty unrealistic because there's just so few white kids in the system already. And the vast majority of them are in very few schools. Well, Courtney, this was super fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us and let folks know how they can get your book. Thank you. Well, you can order it wherever you order your books. Go to your local bookstore. That's that's the best, of course. And please read uh, our essay side by side in the nation, because I think Jamila's perspective on, you know, the importance of black spaces is like a thread in my book, but so beautifully drawn out in that essay. Thank you so much. And I really enjoyed your piece for the nation as well been great having you on the show. Really enjoyed talking to you. And before we get out of here, we've got one last thing that we do for our listeners, as you know, which is recommendations. So let's start with you, Courtney. Do you have a recommendation? Yes. So I am obsessed with this Substack newsletter called Mom Spreading. It's by a friend and neighbor of mine. And she's kind of like Emily Oster or like, you know, more old school, like a Dr. Spock kind of person, but meets (laughs) Ali Wong. So it's just like, it's so funny. She is just like totally brave and hilarious in everything she writes. She's self-effacing. She makes a million like 90s R&B references. It's like everything I need in one essay about parenting, but not really about parenting at all. She also happens to have a PhD in child psychology. So she like (laughs) really does know what she's talking about, but she'll just like, you know, she actually wrote a review of my book and in the headline was the word thongs and she like worked the thong song somehow into the review which was just like I have no idea how it happened so if you want to like get parenting advice from someone who actually knows but laugh your ass off and like remember junior high dances subscribe to mom spreading I need to go I need this in my life (laughs) I think I also need this too Elizabeth what are you recommending this week Okay, well, I am taking advantage of all the vaginas in the room and recommending pelvic floor PT (laughs) because after having three babies, I literally did not know that I could do anything about pelvic weakness, which is like when you pee when you sneeze or when you're trying to run or any of that. And I was just like casually talking to my friend kind of complaining about it. And she's a nurse practitioner, and she was like, well, you need to go to pelvic floor PT. She's like, I went right after my first, and I was like, what? So then I was, like, super nervous to talk to the doctor about it and all of that, but got my referral, and I've been going since I got here, and it's, like, amazing. It is not at all scary. It's making, like, a huge difference for me. Insurance covers it, which is great. But it's just, like, overall, like, having someone work with you on core muscles and all the other muscles that are supposed to help that just got 
weakened by carrying kids. And if you're still nervous about it, there's a wonderful Instagram account called orthopelvicpt. So that's O-R-T-H-O-P-E-L-V-I-C-P-T. That's on Instagram. And she just goes through kind of all the different things you can do, including telling you that you can start doing some of this stuff during pregnancy. So I just want to like spread the word that if if these are things that you are facing, there is actually something you can do about it. And it's great. It's like really life changing. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. Um, <laughs> that is good to know. I think we should all be taking good care of our pelvic floors. Don't wait until it uh, becomes something that you have to think about because it will become something you have to think about. And it's not all just Kegels. It's, no. it's like so much more. So if, if you're thinking it's just going to be like, do some more Kegels or someone trying yeah. to help you do that, that's not at all what it is. Absolutely. No, there's certainly a lot more to taking care of that part of our body than Kegels. And I celebrate you for sharing that, Elizabeth. Thank you. <laughs> so I am recommending online vintage shopping. Uh, I am far from a pro or a master, but it is something I used to do a lot of in the past. I also used to do more in-person vintage shopping. I just haven't found my vintage shops yet in L.A. Like I'm aware of a few, you know, here and there. There's probably but- some really great ones. There, I know there are, you know. But like you gotta find, you gotta find the right ones for sure, right? Because like the ones that are in really highly populated, heavily trafficked areas, I'm like, I've never known a vintage <laughs> shop or resale shop to be great because a lot of people were there, you no. know. <laughs> so, um, in my desire to be more sustainable in terms of clothing and to just kind of give back to creating an interesting wardrobe, I've been looking at stuff online again, and I'm constantly reminded that any random thing that you thought about, like this stretch peacock shirt that I had from the gap when I was in high school. If you like just Google it, there's a good chance somebody might be selling it online. I wasn't able to find it in my size, but it was just comforting knowing that it was still there and also not as cute as I thought it was. But lately I've been finding stuff on Macari and eBay and like, you know, I've had to make a few alterations here and there, like maybe cutting a hem and, you know, taking it to the cleaners and like getting it properly hemmed up because I couldn't do it myself with my scissors or whatever. But like, I don't know. I just think, especially with us getting ready to go back to school and thinking about the first letter writer uh, or rather the, the listener question that we answered this week. If you are looking for some new clothes or a way to make your wardrobe or your child's wardrobe a little bit more interesting, what was that cool trend when you were in like eighth grade that you wanted to try that maybe your kid would be into or that maybe you could try now? You know, like I've been buying rompers and shit, all types of things that like, I don't know, I wouldn't find these hanging up in a store right now. You know, like I can't say that like sailor dresses for women are on trend, but like... (laughs) Somehow I fell down a sailor dresses for women rabbit hole and found a really cute one online for 35 bucks. And it fits me amazingly. And nobody else is going to have it because it's not currently on display anywhere. How do you do the sizing? Because like that, that is the one thing that I think holds me back specifically from the vintage. Like I do a lot of like thread up and kind of large online like used clothing. But when I look mm-hmm. at the vintage stuff, like, are you just really good with your measurement? Like you just know your measurements or you're doing a lot of like alterations? There's a lot of guesswork, you know, like you can typically assume that something I will say, like in general, I've been lucky that people have been honest about sizing and I do measure myself, you know, on a regular basis, like to kind of know like, okay, yeah. if this says this is only going to stretch to, you know, a 35 inch hip you're not going to be able to get into it like why are you putting yourself through this but like I just would say pay attention to sizing and look at Mm -hmm. how the garment looks like if they put it on a mannequin or whatever like checking how much spandex there is too because something can look small you know and then stretch out and you have a lot of space yeah the fabric has a lot to do with it because older sizing is different you know like if if I were to buy something that was made in the 60s or 70s I would have you know rightfully assume that it may be, you know, three, maybe even four dress sizes larger than what I would buy in a store sometimes, you know, there have also been times where I've picked up garments and then like, oh, I thought that, you know, this would be sized uh, much differently, but it's, you know, it's a medium then and I'm a medium now and it fits me. But I would just say pay really close attention and and the fabric has a lot to do with it. I tend to wear stuff that's stretchy. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't require things that like fit perfectly yeah yeah you know what I mean but like if you're someone who's looking for things that are going to be really tight or if you require thing, you know or if you like wearing things that are kind of loose you know vintage can be easy but if you're looking for your things to fit per if you like your clothes to like fit for real basically then this might not be for <laughs> this you this is not for you 
But no, but you have <laughs> such, you find such great like statement pieces. Like I feel like you have a really good eye for this too. Thank you. I also get to look at your closet every uh, every week. That's true. You are looking at all the sequins and like. I'm, I'm always <laughs> like, gosh. Plus, you know, well, I mean, we see it on Instagram and things like that too. But I I love this, and I didn't really think about. It's so stupid, but I didn't really think about looking at the fabrics because that's kind of what holds me back. Is like, am I going to get a good fit? But you're right. You can tell so much by just knowing what it's made of. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, happy hunting for anyone who wants to get into the online vintage hunting game, online vintage shopping game, rather. And that is our show. Thank you so much, Courtney, Martin, for joining us. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we will see you next week. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.